The scripture today is a verse from Judges and then the beginning of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then from Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the Ephrathites, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabout wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and then the name of the other was Ruth. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning. Sorry about that. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right, there we go. You guys were singing so good. Stay with me. This part, you can engage in this part of the service too, okay? Uh, we, uh, we begin this morning a new series in the book of Ruth. It's a much beloved book in the Old Testament. Uh, the reason we tend, if you've, if you've not really uh, noticed, what we tend to try to do is um, kind of make our way back and forth between the Old and the New Testament. And so we were in Luke for a long, long time. Then we did Psalm 23. Uh, we, we, we did kind of a topical series uh, through Lent on the seven deadly sins, but we're going to be here in Ruth uh, for the, until about the time school gets out, because in the fall we're going to begin a rather lengthy series on the book of Romans in the New Testament. Uh, but I have to say, um, months ago when we planned this, because we're Presbyterians and we're planners, and so we've known for months we were going to be here, uh, I was a little bit kind of like, eh, I don't know, that's, uh, yeah, you know, I guess that'll be okay. Everybody kind of knows Ruth, it's kind of pedestrian. But now that we're here, I really think, uh, I'm really excited because I think this is exactly where the Lord would have our church be for the next few months together. Uh, so this is a great book. Uh, there's a lot for us to learn here. Uh, and I'm really excited for the next few weeks for us to be able to do this. Uh, Vicki read the scripture to you. If you have a Bible, it, what I, I want to set this up a little bit. It'd be really great for you to find a Bible, maybe find one in the pew in front of you. Uh, we've trained you thoroughly to not bring your Bibles to church, which is probably not a good thing. Uh, you probably still should bring it, even though we provide all the scripture for you. But I just want you to see uh, the reason we're going in the direction we're going this morning. Uh, the book of Ruth begins with the phrase there in verse 1, which Vicki did read, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the, the book right in front of the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. And so the, the, the phrase there at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, is pointing us backward to the book that comes right before it. In fact, if you, if you buy commentaries and such, which I don't expect you to do, but, but those of us who do this for a living, we have to do that kind of thing. And many of the commentaries that are written are, are combined commentaries between the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Because really, in the, the Bible, the two are supposed to go together. And so you see there that the book begins with that phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. So it's setting the context for, for what this book is really about. It ends, it actually has two endings, this book of Ruth does. So if you look at the very end of the book, and I really couldn't capture this in a way that it would have been helpful for Vicki to have read it to you. But if you look at the end there, there's, there's two endings. The first is in verse 17, and then the second ending is at the very end of the book in verse 21. And what's fascinating is, is that both in verse 17, in the first ending, and in verse 21, or 22, excuse me, with the second ending, both the endings end exactly the same way with just a single word. And what's the word? David. So the book begins in the time when the judges ruled. The book ends with a name, just a simple name, David. And Ruth is the bridge between the two. 
the first sentence looks back to the book, you know, at the book of Judges, which was a time of deep distress for God's people, full of moral and, and spiritual decline, apostasy, and political turmoil. The very last word looks forward to 1 Samuel, which is going to come next, and the ascension of the king after God's own heart, King David. And in the Bible, just the word David, it's like an electrical current. It jolts you. It's full of both nostalgia and also, depending on where you are reading in the scriptures, nostalgia and looking back and longing and looking forward. Because the years of David's reign were the golden years of Israel. And so the word David, just the word, is a messianic word. It's a synonym for the kingdom of God. It is a promise for the future, a promise of peace and flourishing for God's people. So the question becomes, then how do you get from what was an awful time under the reign of the judges to the time of flourishing and peace and prosperity of God's people in the time of the reign of David. That's the question the book is meant to answer. How does David come? Right? How does does the kingdom come is another way of saying that. How does David come? How does the kingdom come? Or when it feels like the world is falling apart around you, if you're, if, you're, if you're a person of the Bible, I mean, if this is your story, if this is what, you know, what your life is centered on, if you're a person of faith, when, when the world is falling apart around you, what do you do? How do you respond? And if you see there how we've entitled this whole series and, and really the title of the, the sermon this morning uh, also, uh, the doctrine that we're going to really explore together in uh, the next few weeks in detail, but today kind of in general is just this, that a crazy world, like the world of the judges, like the world, we're going to see the parallels, like the world that we live in, a crazy world demands a crazy love. A crazy world calls for a crazy love. How does the kingdom of God come? How do God's purposes keep pushing forward in the world when it feels like the world is off its hinges? The book of Ruth shows us the way. And so we're going to see just two things from this book this morning. The first, we're going to look at the context for the book of Ruth, and we're going to see that it is set indeed in a crazy world. But secondly, not only the context, but we want to also look briefly and kind of in general at the content of the book of Ruth, and Ruth is all about a crazy love. So Judges really captures a crazy world. Ruth captures a crazy love, and that's what we're going to see, that a crazy world, like the world that Ruth was living in, like the world that we're living in, calls for crazy love because that's the way the kingdom of God moves forward. Now, i got to tell you something. i got to be honest with you this morning and say, this is an exegetical sermon. I'm preaching exegetically this morning, but it's not going to feel like it. It is, but it's not going to feel like it because we're doing, uh, we, we have done ambitious things in the past. We've done one sermon on an entire book of the Bible before, but this morning we're doing one sermon on two entire books of the Bible. And so it's going to feel... It's going to feel very big picture, very vision for your life kind of thing, but that's the kind of person I am anyway. I get excited about those things. And so I'm going to make a lot of implications. I'm going to draw out a lot of things, but I'm not necessarily going to be able to point you to the exact places in the text where, where I'm drawing those things out. Does that make sense? So hang in with me and just know I've not like gone off on my own this morning, but it's not going to have the same kind of feel as a sermon might normally as we talk. Big picture. We're talking about We're going to summarize both of these books and bring them together and set the stage for what we're going to do in the weeks to come. So let's just start with this idea of the context for the book of Ruth, the crazy world 
of the judges. And you just look there in verse 1, I'll point out how, again, how the book begins. Uh, it sets the stage. It's an important part of what's going to come for the rest of the book where it says in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. So Ruth picks right up where judges left off. You might say it that way. So where did judges leave off? Well, if you look back, that's why we read it. Back at the very end of the book of Judges, there's the line at the very end of the book, which really captures the theme of the whole book. And it says, in those days, in the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the theme of the book. And it's repeated. We know it's the theme because it's repeated four times in the last five chapters to explain the moral and spiritual decline of Israel from the beginning of the book to the end. Judges, if you know, the story begins at the death of Joshua as the people begin to settle into the promised land. They had defeated one enemy after another as they made their way through the land. Uh, God had been fighting for them. They were united as one people. They were worshiping Yahweh in the way that he had commanded them and were experiencing the blessing and the rest that he had promised them under Moses. It was all good. Everything was great. By the end... Just a few, you know, 20 chapters later or so, really about 15 chapters later, it's, it's gone so far as there is, there is now outright idolatry and religious corruption. There are priests for hire. There's moral decay. There's sexual perversion and violence. And you've, you've just walked through and experienced this downward spiral of political instability and eventually civil war. I mean, it, it's gotten just about as bad as it could possibly get. If you want just one example... Uh, one of the most vivid portrayals of sin in all of the Bible is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know um, you know the story. It's where we get the word sodomy from, if that fires your imagination at all. I'll spare you the details, uh, because we just don't need to go there. It's not really the point of the sermon this morning. However, in Judges 17 and 18, what the commentators and the scholars say you have there is there's a reenactment of of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah there in Judges 17 and 18, but it's in Gibeah, which is one of the cities in Israel in the tribe of Benjamin. And so the author's doing something very specific here. He's, he's laying out a very, a, you know, a very clear reenactment of something that was awful and heinous to God's people, but he was saying, now it's happening among you. It's gotten so bad that used to be the things that characterized the wicked, corrupt world that I've set you in uh, now those things are characterizing the way you live too. And so we read in Judges 19.30 where the, the writer, this is 19.30, the writer comments on this and he says, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the people of Israel uh, since they came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. So it's, it, this is the literary, intended literary effect of the story to say it's never been this bad. Before or since it's never been this bad. And that's the book of Judges. The compiler of the material used it as a negative example. Uh, and, and so there's debate about the date and authorship of the book. Now, that might not seem important, <laughs> uh, but it is, I think, to understand the message. Uh, Vicki and I are actually talking about this just a few days ago, how to understand any of the message of the books of the Bible, you have to remember that it's written to a specific source within a specific context to a specific audience with a specific message. So the reason that's important is that these Old Testament stories are not just history lessons, they're theology lessons. And so I tend to be convinced that the book of Judges that has come down to us in our scriptures was written to the post-exilic Jewish community uh, on, on, as they've come back in their return to the promised land from the exile in Babylon under the Persians. 
and, and it was written to kind of help them because, you know, Churchill said, or he was famous for saying that those who fail to learn uh, from history are doomed to repeat it. And so these newly returned exiles were in a similar political climate as Israel was during the time of the judges. And so the book was written to them, I believe, to help them wisely organize themselves politically and theologically. So Judges, on its face, is an apology for David. It's why it's connected with Ruth, and then Ruth ends with that word. If I had to sum up the message of the book, it would be something like this. You need David. You need, you need a king like David. You need, you need a son of David. Which, of course, is significant for us because in our ears, that sounds like what? You need the son of David. You need Jesus. His kingdom is the kingdom that you're looking for. His rule is the place of your flourishing. He is the king you need, and that's why the book was written. And so we learn a lot about our world and what's really going on and what our response should be in the world that we see here in the book of Judges. So let's think about that in just a little more detail, that verse in verse 25. We notice here that, and if you go back and look into the story, it was a political, a, a, um, a time of political and more importantly, religious or metaphysical vacuum. It was, it was a political and religious or, or metaphysical vacuum. Now I have in mind the phrase, there was no king in Israel. And it is an expression of a political vacuum. So the time of the judges is the time between Joshua and David. Joshua, the strong leader, leading them out and into the land. And then, of course, David. And in both of those cases, the people flourished. But in between, there was a series of charismatic leaders that arose to deliver the people from their political enemies, beginning with characters like Othniel and then Barak and Gideon and Samson and then ending ultimately with Samuel. And these judges, they burst onto the scene and then disappeared with very little lasting effect. And the lesson that we're to learn from the story is that we need strong, stable leadership to flourish. Can I say that again? We, you, you and me, me too. We need strong, stable leadership to flourish. God has designed us that way. He's designed his church that way. He's designed the world to, to run that way. We are sheep. And we, needed to be, we need to be shepherded. We need in order to flourish, strong, stable leadership. I read an article this week about Aaron Hernandez, uh, the NFL star who was convicted for murder and then this week hanged himself in his jail cell. And it was written by a national recruiting coordinator, so I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with college football, so I tend to, Twitter tends to put me in those circles. And uh, this guy was writing, he knew him as a 16, 17-year-old kid as he was being recruited and he was reflecting on what a great kid he, he was back then. I mean, just a superb, outstanding, stellar student and, and great kid. And, and um, you know, and how in the world did it go so wrong for him? Uh, he, Aaron, Aaron Hernandez, had an older brother who played quarterback for UConn. He's from Connecticut. And so the, the plan, I didn't know any of this, but the plan was for him to follow his older brother to UConn. And then during his junior year, his father died, and his life just fell apart. Um, now, he decommitted from UConn and went to UF, and now the point of the story is not that you shouldn't go to the University of Florida. <laughs> his life didn't fall apart because he went to UF. His life fell apart because all of a sudden he, he was made to live without the leadership and guidance of his dad. And without, without his dad, 
uh, or his older brother. See, he, he walked away not only from his dad, but really fr from the protection of his older brother who was there and wanted them to come play football with him. He, he then began to surround himself with bad influences, and the rest is, the, is as they say, history. And I just thought, wow, the power of a father in the life of his kids. The power of leadership. And it's why I think the Bible commands us to honor our leaders, our parents, our pastors, our president. To honor headship inside of marriage. To honor teachers in the classrooms, both students and parents. To honor spiritual leaders by asking for their wisdom and counsel and by submitting to their authority. Because if there is a leadership vacuum in your life, if you're moving away from leadership in your decision making, you're walking a very dangerous road. And it's indicative of a much bigger problem. Because not only was there a political vacuum that we find here in the book of Judges, there was also a spiritual, religious, or metaphysical vacuum. Israel was a theocracy, which means their true king was God himself. His word was their law. So to say there was no king in Israel meant that there was no faith, there was no spiritual life. There was a religious vacuum. Judges 2.10 tells us that a generation arose in Israel that did not know the Lord or the things that he had done in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. They lost their history. They lost their story. And as religious people, they had a, a master story that gave them meaning and purpose and direction but they lost it. They stopped telling it to one another. They stopped telling it to their kids. They didn't pass the faith on to the next generation, and so they lost their way. It happens for irreligious people too. That's why I use the word metaphysical. There is a metaphysical vacuum here and also in our world where no, no transcendent story, no revealed truth that we have to bring our lives into submission to. For the wise men of old, C.S. Lewis said, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. But for the modern man, the problem is how to subdue, the reality, subdue reality to the wishes of men. If you want to understand our culture, that, that, that sentence just gives you a snapshot into everything uh, that is wrong with what, with what we're facing as a people. Let me say it again. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. But for the modern man, and he was writing 50 years ago. Think about it to 70 years ago. Think about it today. But for the modern man, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man. In other words, it used to be that we believed that there was a transcendent reality, a truth outside of us. And flourishing meant that you had to bring your life into alignment with that truth. But in postmodernism, there is no transcendent truth. There is no transcendent reality. There is no truth beyond the individual. And so now the path to flourishing, we're told, is to subdue the external world to our internal desires. I mean, think about the way identity works in our culture. The way we use the word identify. The external world must conform to whatever I believe myself to be on the inside. My internal self determines reality for me, not only for me, but for also for everybody else. There's a metaphysical vacuum. And what it does is it leads to moral anarchy and slavery uh, in the name of freedom. There was no king, no universal truth. And so look there, what happens? What happens when there is no king? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a notion that's celebrated in our culture, but not in Judges. It's a very bad thing, according to the Bible. Okay? Freedom, freedom has come to be defined as no restraints, as uninhibited self-definition and self-expression. Complete autonomy. That's our salvation. 
But in the Bible, that is not salvation, that's slavery. The definition of sin, according to the prophet Isaiah, is turning to your own way. So autonomy is not freedom. It's slavery. Freedom is having the ability and the desire to do and to be what you were created to do and to be. It is the capacity to live in the environment that you were created for. I mean, if you take a fish out of a bowl and you drop it onto a kitchen counter, it will flop around and it will eventually die. Why? Because it has been made in such a way that it absorbs oxygen from water, not air. Put the fish back in the water and the same motion that was once flopping and flapping is now gliding because it was made for the water, not for the kitchen counter. Freedom isn't a lack of limits. It isn't the absence of any constraints. It is the ability and the desire to live, the ability and the desire to live in the environment you were created for. If you keep doing your own thing, if you keep acting contrary to your design, if you're not moving towards flourishing, if you do that, you're becoming a slave. If you keep living your life that way, it's not flourishing you're moving towards, it's slavery you're moving towards. Because every sin leaves a little mark in your soul that makes it easier to do it the next time. Now, we're in East Polk County, so I can use the analogy. Sin creates little ruts that eventually become so deep you get stuck. Have you ever been stuck in the mud before? I know. I've seen the the trucks you guys drive. Most of you have. And if you've been stuck, I mean, like, really stuck. Like, call your friend, I'm stuck, stuck. What do you do if you're stuck? You have no choice. You have to call someone who's got a truck or a tractor big enough to, and powerful enough to pull you out and you tie yourself to them and their power and their freedom, their traction is what pulls you out. That's the message of judges, that in a climate of political and spiritual vacuum, the people started going their own way and in going their own way, they eventually got stuck and that is the consequence of sin. Now, what's wrong with the world, people ask? The Christian answer is that the world is under the wrath of God. Romans 1 says that God is angry because of sin. He's angry here in the book of Judges because of the way the people are living. And the way that he expresses his anger, this is scary, listen. The way he expresses his anger is to give us over to our desires. It's what's happening in Judges. Now, my kids, my kids are happier because I don't say yes to every request. Now, they don't know that, of course, but I do. If I, if I only said yes, if I never said no, they would not be as happy. If Ashley and I just decided to leave and not come back for a week, it would be Lord of the Flies in our house in about five hours. And we have good kids. I mean, they're good, they're, you know, they're obedient, nice children, but it would be straight up face paint and pigs roasting on spits. Because my authority in my family is a good thing. And when I express my authority and thwart my kids' desires, it is an act of love towards them. And ultimately, they are happier because of it. When God expresses his authority, when he makes demands, when he says no, when he puts his hands on you to discipline you, it's an act of love. When he takes his hands off of you and leaves you to yourself, that is an act of judgment. And that was what it was like, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. It's very similar to today. Scary time. Crazy, crazy time. So that's the context for Ruth. Now, much quicker from here. Political turmoil, 
moral and spiritual decline and slavery. That's how the book begins. But notice, see, there's a change. Something happens, but it ends with hope. David, twice, David. And so how do you get from what I've been describing from that to the other? How do you bridge the gap? And so that's what the content of the book of Ruth is all about. It's a crazy world we're living in. How do you live in a crazy world? The answer that Ruth gives is you live in a crazy world with a crazy love. Judges chronicles the exploits of powerful men and women with magnetic personalities who rally people to their cause. But truth be told, these judges come and go with little effect. And that is part of the lesson of the book that God raises them up, but the deliverance that they bring is short-lived because they are not the way of God's kingdom coming. Instead, listen, this is my, this is kind of my, this is what I want you to hear this morning. What, what we learn from these two books put side by side is that the kingdom comes through ordinary people in living small lives filled with normal everyday tasks who display an extraordinary love. Can I say that again? That God's kingdom comes through ordinary people living small lives filled with normal everyday tasks who display an extraordinary love. Othniel, Judges 3, was, was contagiously courageous, like his uncle Caleb. Deborah, Judges 4, was a dynamic public speaker. Gideon, Judges 6, was an incredibly talented organizer. Jephthah, Judges 11, was a mighty warrior. Samson, in Judges 13 and so forth, was a giant of a man. He had an impressive physique. He was Herculean in his feats of strength. And then there's Ruth, a woman, a foreigner, an immigrant, a widow, the lowest of the low, and Boaz, who we'll meet later in the series, a clan leader, but a big fish in a very small pond, for sure, just an ordinary man going about his days, doing what he'd always done, and yet what we're told here is that David comes not through the mighty judges, but through two ordinary people living small lives filled with normal everyday tasks, but who display an extraordinary love for others. And first Ruth towards her mother-in-law, then Boaz towards Ruth. And what happens in the book, we'll see in the weeks to come, is a chain reaction of extraordinary love begins to happen that pushes back the darkness and ushers in the kingdom of God. And there's a lesson. And the lesson is this. If you want to change the world, become a person of character. Become a person who excels at the work of love. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be successful. If you really want to count, if you want your life to really matter, then quietly in non-Facebook-worthy ways, choose love. Live an ordinary life with extraordinary love. Young men, listen, there's a few of you. If you want to count... You don't have to run a business by the time you're 30. Just get a job. Show up. Work hard. Find a wife. Love her. Buy a house. Mow the lawn. Raise some kids. That's radical. And the world is full of talented, charismatic big shots. It's lacking for character. You want to be a leader? You want to make a difference? Be a person of character. Because that's what it means to be a leader. To be a person who prays, as we've been taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, means that you view your whole life as an opportunity for love. You refuse self-pity. Everywhere you go, you show up for other people when your friend makes the team, and you don't. You don't go away and pout. You celebrate it. 
And the question in your life changes from why am I here, which is so self-referential, isn't it? I mean, it's so like just pathetically existential. Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Right? Why? Why? What's, what's, what's the purpose for all of this? The question changes from why am I here? You don't, you don't ask that question anymore. What, the question you ask is, who am I here for? Who am I called to? I mean, teenagers, every class period you go into, you ought to ask, who needs a friend? Who can I be a friend to? If you're on a sports team, it's not about winning. How can I love my teammates? How can I love my coaches? How can I be a good, a good teammate to these, to these guys? I mean, the solution, if you're, you know, if you're a person of faith, the solution to almost any problem that you're in is not to win, it's to love. I mean, just weeks ago, I haven't been able to get over it. We read in 1 Corinthians 6 about a disagreement that broke out in the church that Paul was writing to there that led to a lawsuit. And Paul has this to say. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? He says, why not be defrauded? I mean, can you imagine that? Do you, do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying there? He says, the purpose of a lawsuit is to win, but a Christian's purpose is to love, which is why in Paul's mind, the two, I mean, sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes the hardest of our hearts is just too bad, but what Paul's saying is, is that, you know, if the purpose of one is to win and the purpose of the other is to love, the two don't go together. It's better to love and to lose. Because when you love and you lose, listen, this is what should encourage your heart this morning. When you love and you, you, and, and you lose as a result, you don't lose. When you love and you lose, the kingdom of God is actually pushing forward in the world. And that's the theme. The theme of the book of Ruth is chesed. I'm going to talk briefly about it here because we're going to come back to it in the next few weeks. But chesed is an important word in the Old Testament. It's important to the book of Ruth. It really is. If we could sum up the whole book, it's this one word. It occurs the first time in eight. We didn't go all the way there this morning. It's translated kindness there. But it is the word used to describe in the book God's dealing with his people, even in the midst of such hard circumstances, 2.20. It's used in 3.10 to honor Ruth for her love for her, Naomi. It also describes, describes Boaz's treatment of her. So it's translated most often steadfast love because it combines the elements of love and loyalty, affection and commitment. In the words of one commentator, it... it, it it brings together the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. And so what we're told here is that the best love always involves both genuine warmth and affection and stubborn loyalty and commitment. Intense love that doesn't last isn't good to anybody. Stubborn love that's cold and unfeeling isn't either. I mean, a short-term passionate fling may be exciting, but it's ultimately not satisfying and a long-standing marriage that is running on stubbornness and not affection, neither of those are chesed. Chesed is warmth and security, affection and passion, and long-term commitment. It's, it's enjoyment and oneness that is so profound it can outlast any threat, any obstacle. It's love that, that doesn't weary when it's hard to keep loving. And so the character of chesed, the heartbeat of it all, is self-forgetfulness and joyful sacrifice. It's the kind of love that has the power of heaven behind it. It's like performing CPR, spiritual CPR. It, it literally brings people back to life. And that's what happens in the book. Uh, Naomi is dead. We're going to find this next week. Naomi's dead. She's not dead, but I mean, she's, she might as well be dead. She's lost everything. She has nowhere to go. She has no future. She has no hope. She has no prospects. I mean, she's just, her world has absolutely 
come to an end. And then she meets with Ruth's chesed and it brings her back to life. And that's how we're called to love one another. That's our work in this world, in this crazy, this crazy world, crazy love, unbalanced, uneven, self-endangering, risk-taking love. That's the way the kingdom comes. And so if you're in a relationship, if you're in a relationship and it's on a respirator, I mean, the commitment or the, the history or whatever it might be uh, is the only thing that's, that's pumping oxygen into the, into the relationship, what we're told is start doing chesed. It'll breathe life back into the relationship. Don't wait until you feel like doing it. That's the, that's the point. This kind of love is not based on feeling. You start with the act of love, and then the feelings of love follow because dying love gives life. That's the message of the book. Dying love gives life. It brings the energy and possibility of God's presence and rule into the dryness and the deadness that is so prevalent in the world. There are people all around you who are gasping for breath, one little act of kindness, one word of encouragement can sometimes be the difference between life and death. Now forgive my melodrama, but it's true. The big moments of our lives are sometimes the small ones. If Ruth teaches anything, it's that every day, every relationship, every change of circumstance is pregnant with possibility. So don't miss the kingdom in the details. Well, how do you do this? Let me finish. We need to come to the end here. How do you do this then? Well, remember where Ruth leaves off? What's the last word of the book? David. The hope for David. And for that, for us, that means the son of David, Jesus Christ. So how do you, how do, you do this? How do you run and not grow weary? Because this is hard, what, what, what Ruth's going to call us to here. Hebrews 12.2 says, you look to Jesus. That's faith. In other words, you stop living your life on the basis of what's in you of whatever strength you can muster. You don't make decisions on an evaluation of your own strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you stop living based on what others are doing, how they're treating you or so forth. You start living because of who Jesus is and the promises that he's made to you. That's faith. That's looking to Jesus. You look to him as your example to imitate him. And you look to him for the strength and grace you need. You look to him as your source. You look to his person and to his work. Both. So you look to the person of Jesus as an example to imitate. And I told you last week, I can't get over it. The person of Jesus, he zigs when I zag. That's the way I would put it to you. And he is the standard. He's what it looks like to be fully alive. Unlike Gideon, he's not a coward. Unlike Elimelech, he was not hungry for the crown. He laid aside the crown of glory and took a crown of thorns. Unlike Samson, he traded in pleasure and comfort for a cross. That's the king that our hearts need. A king like that, that's sacrificial and humble and kind. Jesus did not go his own way. He did not do what was right in his own eyes. He didn't live for himself. There was no selfishness in him whatsoever. He lived his entire life with one goal, to love the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love us. And he lives in heaven now with the same purposes. See, Judges and Ruth are pointing us to a per person. And when you see him in the Gospels doing the things that seem utterly confounding, don't let yourself say, eh, I can never do that. He's God and I'm not. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus became like us in order to make us like him. He said, my followers will do what I do and even greater things than, than I do. And I don't know that that refers to all of his miraculous, powerful things, but I know it refers to the way he loved. Albert Einstein once said that though he was a Jew, 
and not a Christian. He was enthralled with the luminous figure of the Nazarene. And I am too. And you need to be too. Your eyes and your gaze need to be full of him. But not only that, we look not just to his person, but to his work as the source of our love. Because there's a principle. Faith empowers love. Love is the expression of faith. Choosing to love and lose, it's an expression of faith because it's God's job to love me, not my job. It's my job to love others. That's what the Bible says, basically. It's God's job to love me, not mine. It's my job to love others. So if I insist on loving me, then he'll leave me to that. But if I make my job to love others, then he'll take over the job of loving me. Furthermore, God does a better job of loving me than I do. I'm better off with him loving me than I am with me trying to love me. So I should leave the job of loving me to him while I love others. That's the way the Christian life works. To be self-forgetful and joyfully sacrificial towards others. And in order to do that, you have to know that there is someone who is self-forgetful and joyfully sacrificial towards you. Faith energizes love. Love is an expression of faith. You can love with chesed love in a crazy, crazy love in a crazy world because despite it being a crazy world, you have been loved with crazy love. Look at the cross. There you'll see his dying love for you that gives you life. His loving response to your sins to take upon himself the wrath of God and die so that we might have life. And the life he gives is his resurrection life. He is raised and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and given all authority and power in heaven and earth. And he's loving you from there with chesed love. He's loving you even better now with better resources at hand in his exaltation than he did in his life and ministry during his humiliation. If you take the sum of his love for you and then subtract out the cost of your love for others, it's always a surplus. That's gospel math, by the way. Gospel calculus. If you're in Christ, you're never facing a deficit. That's the truth of the scripture. Don't don't spend your life acting like you are. You can never spend more than you've been given. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the, that's the message. His crazy love for us is the model and the source for our crazy love for others as we journey through this crazy world that he has called us into because he's a God of redemption. And so let's pray that he would prepare us to do just that. So Father, We do confess to you that the world does seem to be off its hinges and it's scary and we're afraid at times, but we believe that you have done just that, that you have called us to a crazy love, a love that is beyond our ability on our own to produce, uh, but we trust in your spirit to be working in us. And so come now as we sing to you, fill our hearts with hope and joy in you, strengthen our faith as we sing these songs, help us to believe Uh, the words that we say that you indeed are a good, good father, that that's who you are. And we're loved by you. That's, That's who we are. And if that's true, if that's true, then whatever demand of love you would put in front of us, we have everything we need to meet it, but only in you. So we're looking to you, Lord. We're looking to you, Jesus. Come and make yourself known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go, as we are sent out into this crazy world, uh, we, we go cling to the cross. We, we cling that we have a Savior who isn't just our model. He's our source. He's our source to be able to love this world 
in a crazy way, just as he has loved us in a crazy way. And that's what this benediction is. So please receive God's benediction over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May, li- may he lift up his face towards you and give you, give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.